Okay, this morning is November 28th. It's Sunday morning. Our message is going to be called Ambassadors this morning. The Bible makes a unique claim about us. It, it really is uh, a unique position as far as world religions are concerned, as far as uh, most people's concept of Christianity is concerned, that the Bible declares that you are an ambassador for Christ. So we're going to look at, at what that means and... Uh, what the implications are are for us. And I was thinking about ambassadors as I obviously began to prepare. And you know, we don't live in a time where you hear an awful lot about ambassadors. You, you hear a few that are in the UN. You might pass the consulate to Mexico or something as you drive down 59. The thought may cross your mind. But as I began to think about the audience, something I knew everybody in here would remember uh, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a time period when ambassadors were important. I mean, there was an ambassador from Russia. His name was Ambassador Zorin. He was the ambassador to the UN. He represented all of the USSR. And does anybody remember who the ambassador from the United States was? Nobody would know him. There you go. It's Adley Stevens. And Stevenson. Yeah, I'm trying to make him a, a family member here. <laughs> but, uh, Adley Stevenson. And you know what? This, this guy, as far as the history books go, would probably only be recorded for one thing but it's because he represented the United States during a difficult time. And uh, I have a little bit of a transcript here this morning. I obviously am not going to read all of this because it, it would put you to sleep, but I want you to hear some things in it. One, just because I thought that he was incredibly clever. But secondly, because of the pronouns he uses, it makes a point that the Scripture is going to make that we'll, we'll cover. But to set the stage, this is uh, in October. We have had 13 or 14 days of serious crisis that most of you in here had lived through. Uh, we were worried about a, a world war caused by uh, nuclear uh, proliferation. I mean, we, we were in a bind in the worst way that the United States had ever been in since World War II. And basically what has happened is uh, the USSR had brought missiles into Cuba and then denied their existence, uh, said that they were only defensive weapons and then said there were no weapons and uh, they whiffled uh, on the subject. And Robert Kennedy was, uh, I'm sorry, Jack Kennedy was president at the time. And everybody knows this guy, uh, like Bill Clinton, went down in history as somebody who uh, was a smooth orator. You know, I mean, he could deliver speeches. His speeches, uh, if I say, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you, everybody in the world, I mean, everybody with any education at all knows who said those words. Well, his brother was equally as talented, and everybody remembers that, a, a skillful deliberator, uh, somebody who was an orator. Well, here is the problem. As the world begins to set up around this blockade, as tensions begin to increase and children are doing drills where they're getting under their school desks because they're worried about a nuclear crisis, somebody has to go and represent the United States, and there, it, it fell to somebody who had a title of ambassador to the U.N., but something not everybody knows is the president didn't have a lot of confidence in him. This was not somebody that he would have picked. It's not somebody that he was sure could get the job done. In fact, he thought about sending his brother instead. And there was a lot of argument in the White House over this. There was a real debate because they didn't think Adley could get it done. Now, we know this side of it that he did. And I want you to hear a few of these words, and then I promise it will start to work into the message. This is how... Now, we live in a day of political correctness and diplomacy 
to the hilt in everything except our presidential elections. That time period of tribal warfare in our country, it gets ugly. But usually when we're dealing with heads of nations, you know, everybody is more than polite. Listen to how he, he begins his address to the UN. All the cameras in the world on him. All the heads are ambassadors of nations there. And he, <laughs> Adley says this. He says, I want to say to you, Mr. Zorin, that I do not have your talent for distortion, for confusing language, and for double talk. And I must confess to you that I'm glad that I do not. But if I understood what you said, you said that my position had changed, that today I was defensive because... We did not have the evidence to prove our assertions that your government had stalled long-range missiles in Cuba. Well, let me say something to you, Mr. Ambassador. We do have evidence. We have it, and it is clear and incontrovertible. And let me say something else. Those weapons must be taken out of Cuba. Next, let me say to you that if I understood you, with a trespass on credibility that excels your best, you said that our position had changed since I spoke here the other day because of the pressures of world opinion and the majority of the United Nations. Well, let me say to you, sir, you are wrong again. We have had no pressure from anyone whatsoever. We came here today to indicate our willingness to discuss Mr. Thant's proposals, and that is the only change that has taken place. But let me also say to you, sir, that there has been a change. You... The Soviet Union has sent these weapons to Cuba. You, the Soviet Union, has upset the balance of power in the world. You, the Soviet Union, has created this new danger, not the United States. And you ask with a fine show of indignation why the President did not tell Mr. Gromyko on the last Thursday about our evidence. At that very time, Mr. Gromyko was blandly denying to the President that the USSR was placing such weapons on sites in the New World. Well, I tell you why. And then he goes on, and everybody remembers the famous point where he says, I want you to tell me, yes or no, are there weapons there? Don't wait for the translation, sir. You are an educated man. I'm prepared to wait today until hell freezes over for your answer, yes or no. Boy, Adley put it on him, didn't he? But did you hear that when he talked to him, he said, you, the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union was not standing there. Neither was the United States. But they had a representative there, this man, Mr. Zorin. He was speaking for all of the USSR, even though he was not Khrushchev. He was not the head of the nation. He was not all of the nation. He was simply the representative figure for the nation. When the Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ, it's not calling you Christ. It's not saying that you're God. Certainly, Adley had flaws for the United States, so many flaws that the president had serious doubts about sending him. But when he stood as an ambassador before the United Nations, despite his flaws, despite his political opinions, because the truth is, Adley was not in support of what the United States was doing. His own diaries bear that out. But when he stood in that position... He was no longer representing himself. He was representing the people who sent him, and so was Zorin. The Bible calls you an ambassador for Christ, despite your flaws, despite the positions that you have in your flesh, the things that you do and don't like to do. When you stand as a Christian, you stand as somebody who is representing God to man. What a heavy responsibility. I would have buckled and cried and went home and you know, not wanting to come out of my house if I had been given the job that Adley Stevens has. 
And yet we are supposed to represent to all of mankind God. Boy, what a heavy responsibility. Now, when people are critical of Christianity, when people talk about why they don't go to church and all those things, how often do you hear somebody cross their arms and say, because God sucks or because Jesus is a bad guy? Never. But you do hear them criticize the ambassadors. So we'll look at our responsibilities this morning. Because you know what? Ambassadors are flawed. There's no doubt about it. But we don't represent ourselves. We're representing God. There's a way that it needs to be done, and we need to know what the message is. Are you all in 2 Corinthians 5? Yes. By the way, that speech for Adley Stevenson, we're not, this is not political science. If you want to read it, it is interesting, and it's here later. Especially those of us that didn't live through the time. It's good to know that kind of stuff. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to pick up Paul has been for four chapters covering various things. This is the second letter. In fact, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians 1. So flip a couple pages back. I want to get something out of the way. One of the problems that we have in Christianity is that since the Reformation, since Protestants have sprung up everywhere, with the idea they used to cry, sola scriptura, the cry against the Catholic Church was, we don't need your... Uh, demagoguery. We don't need your leadership. The Bible is all we need. We want to be ruled by Scripture and Scripture alone. But we Protestants have set up a whole other problem. In interpreting the Scripture, the Catholic Church always taught the church must interpret it for the people. And only the traditions of the church with the Scripture equal a good interpretation. Protestants said, no, any man can interpret the Scripture. And then we've raised up for ourselves preachers that have made this so complicated that nobody could understand it. You know, they, we, we, not they, we teach and we say, ah, oh, if you could read the Greek, knowing that nobody in the audience can read the Greek. We teach in such depth about shadows and types that it leaves the people in the audience with the idea, Lord, who on earth could understand this? This is not at all what the Bible was meant to do. There are two kinds of Greek available to Jesus. Has anybody been to see that movie about Alexander yet? I probably won't go see it either. I mean, I'm not thrilled about the actor. But the story is a good one. Alexander conquered the world by the time he was 26 years old. He was a person who was raised up by God for appointment. Not because he was godly, but he needed to perform a task. He forced the world to learn to speak Greek. Now, why on earth would that be important? Because immediately after him, the Romans would come and build roads to the ends of the earth. Now there would be one language and a road system that God could get His gospel out to all of the people. This was important, and it was set up by design. In Jesus' day, Jesus spoke Hebrew, or Aramaic, dialects of the same language. Jesus also spoke Greek, and there were two kinds of Greek. The upper echelon, the educated, the people who would write classical Greek literature spoke one kind of Greek. And the commoners on the street, everywhere you went in every province, spoke Koine Greek. Jesus taught in Koine Greek because He wanted everybody everywhere to understand. Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Then we'll get back to the ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, this is page 1282 for those of you in the Thompson chain, I'm sorry, verse 13. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Now, I don't usually quote one-liners to you, 
But understand this. Paul's written a letter to the Corinthian church. Now he's writing a second letter. These letters comprise our Bible. The letters that he wrote to people are what we call the Holy Writ, the Scripture. And Paul said about them, we don't write to you anything that you can't read or understand. And yet, we've created the idea that you have to go to seminary. You have to have master's degrees and doctorates to properly understand this. That's no better than going back to the Dark Ages where you had to depend upon a priest or an archbishop or a pope to give you an interpretation. The guy who wrote this said, we don't write you anything that you can't read or that you can't understand. Now, do you know specifically what he was talking about? He's talking about the first letter to the Corinthian church. There's not a more misunderstood book in the Bible than 1 Corinthians. You remember, this is where we go into lengthy arguments and discussions in the, in the church realm about definitions of pronouns, whether it's with or in, and all of these things, because people don't like what it says. See, I'll give you a, a real common example. And again, I'm on a political theme this morning. I can't help it. Does anybody in here have any doubt what the word is means? No. Is is something you can teach a child to use, right? This is it. This is that. Whatever you want. Uh-oh. That's okay. We, we can do without that. Nobody doubts what is means. But when you're in trouble, when you don't like what is means, even the head of our nation at one time said it depends on what your definition of is is. We do the same thing with Scripture. It couldn't be any plainer 99% of the time what it means. But if you don't like what it means, then all of a sudden it becomes difficult and hard to understand. And it really depends on how you define. And we go into these lengthy arguments. This morning we want to strip away some of that. We want to get right into, in the nuts and bolts of it, in the most basic sense, what are Christians? And what are Christians supposed to do? And the bottom line is, we're not supposed to represent our opinions. We're supposed to represent the opinion of the one who sent us. Back to 2 Corinthians 5. Okay. The story of the Bible. You'll hear me repeat this hundreds of times, and that's because I want you to learn it, and it's not taught everywhere. The story of the Bible is about the creation of man. That's why Genesis starts with the six days of creation and the placement of a man on the earth. Then this man falls from grace, if you will. He commits sin, and death enters the world. That's what the Bible's about. The placement of a man, death entering the world through a sin, and then the removal of that death problem. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not so that archaeologists can figure out what time period dinosaurs lived in. It's not so that you can determine whether... In some solar system, galaxies away, there's life on another planet. It's, it's for none of those things. The story of the Bible is the story of man's placement on the earth, man's fall from grace, and man's restoration from the problem of death. With that in mind, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's going to pick up with that problem. He says, Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Now, the easiest way to understand this, because you have not just read the previous five chapters, is that a tent is a temporary dwelling, 
I spent the night in a tent just the other night, as did Brad, with two little boys. I wouldn't want to live there permanently. There's a problem with tents. They wear out. Sometimes rain gets in. They are not entirely secure from everything that might attack them. Tents are meant to be temporary. The Bible calls your body a tent. So don't be surprised when you start to see it wear out. When the wind's been beating on it for a while, the rain's been beating on it for a while, and you see a new wrinkle. (laughs) You know, that's the tent. But the hope of the Bible is that you will one day exchange this tent for a building. Now, this is not complicated language. This is not meant to be uh, metaphorical to the point where only a deep scholar could understand. This is the kind of thing you could explain to Judah, my seven-year-old. Say, son, your body's like a tent. It's temporary. But God's going to give you something that's more like a building, permanent. And he would understand that. So we don't need to make this anything more complicated than it is. That's exactly what it is. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. There is a day coming, the Bible teaches This is the hope of all of the gospel. When this body that you have, that is mortal, that is suffering from the effects of sin and death, this is why we get tumors, this is why we get sicknesses, this is why Matt's struggling with his voice this morning. Not that he sinned, but there's sin in the world. And it is wearing on us. It's eroding us. The hope of the Bible is that there is a day when that process, that tent, will be swallowed up by life. This building from God. The Bible describes this building as a glorified body, which is a fancy way to say you will exchange this tent for something that cannot wear out, a body that does not die. Now, that's not really complicated, is it? It can be made to be that way. We could argue about Greek syntax all day. We, we could talk about all the things that different scholars through the ages have said, but bottom line is Paul said, I didn't write to you anything that's hard for you to understand or that you can't read. So let's take it in its most simple context. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The reason that the Holy Ghost was given to believers was a taste of the power that is to come. It was a deposit, a down payment for the purpose of letting you know God has power on earth and I'm going to put some of that power in a person in people, as a down payment proving that you will one day exchange this tent for a building. Now, if I was going to go buy a car, recently I was looking at some, I won't buy them, but, you know, the first thing that you do is you go put a down payment on the car, even if it's for a few minutes before you finance it. You write a check for whatever your down payment is. That reserves it. That shows you're serious about it. That promises that you will come through with the rest. God put such a down payment on his believers. As an ambassador of Christ, the first thing that you have in you is a deposit. He put his spirit, his very essence, his character, who he is, in you. You know, if Adley was going to go stand before the UN, the most important thing was not that he expressed his views. The most important thing was not that he be skillfully articulate, although he was. The most important thing was that he properly had the understanding of the president in him to explain to people. Because if he didn't have that, he couldn't be an effective ambassador. He did have it, and he did do well. 
So you have a deposit in you guaranteeing what is to come. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, that if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't belong to Christ. So people can argue, and this is where denominations begin to split. The United Pentecostals go one way, Charismatics go another, Baptists another. I could care less about all of that. But this is where the dividing line is. Either you have a deposit or you don't. Now, how you know that? We'll search that out in the Scripture. But the bottom line is all Christians have a deposit or you're not a Christian. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, Paul said, hey, I'm so confident of this, I'd really rather not be hanging out in this tent. I'd rather be with the Lord. But he goes on to say, uh, so we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due Him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And we're going to go on from here in just a minute, but that is a really important thing. The Bible makes no bones about it. Every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth will at one time in history stand before Jesus the Christ, the anointed ruler over all things, and you will stand before this brown-eyed, brown-skinned Jew and give an account for everything that was ever done in your body, whether good or bad. Have you ever talked to somebody and they said, well, that's your interpretation? Yeah, who hadn't, right? Have you ever talked to people that they thought that the waters were so muddy that it was not possible to understand the Bible? There is a vested interest in that because we're trying to avoid this one statement. We're trying to avoid accountability on the day that we stand before Jesus. We would rather this be so cloudy that it couldn't be understood. We would rather this be vaguely ambiguous so that you are not held accountable. Indeed, most of human behavior is in some way trying to transfer the blame that naturally rests on us to someone else. This started with Adam, the very first head of a household. I mean a man among men, right? The federal head of the human race. Adam, why'd you eat this? She gave it to me. You know? Yeah, all the wives love that. It is true. And then God comes and says, Hey, Eve, why did you, why did you do this? It was a snake, you know? Poor snake, he had no one else to blame it on. He got tricked by the devil. You know, somebody you couldn't see. The national pastime's never been baseball. It's always been transferal of the blame. That's what human beings do. You never see this any more so than in a workplace. You know? From the top right on down. We don't know why it went wrong, but it's not my fault. It's got to be Matthews. And Matt says, hey, look, I, I didn't have anything. I wasn't even there. It's Bobby's. No, it's Stevens. No, and, and it goes all the way around till the blame is so dispersed that it rests on no one. We don't know why it went wrong, but here we are to fix it. I, again, I've got a political vein this morning. Everybody can agree that 9-11 was a bad thing, right? Nobody's responsible for it. There's nobody in our government that stood up and said, this was my fault. But we had our government come together, make a commission, and say, we know how to fix it. The Bible does not work this way. It does not avoid accountability and then suggest a plan. Everything in salvation starts with accepting accountability and then accepting a plan. If you want to properly understand the Bible, the first thing you have to do is decide that it's right and you're wrong. 
the very first thing that you have to do is come to a faith in the Scripture based on reading it, based on the evidences around you, that it contains the truth and you don't. You have to put it in a position where its opinion is above yours. Otherwise, you can't qualify to be an ambassador. Because if Adley Stevens had never accepted the premise that the president had the right to convey his opinion and not Adley, we would have had an insurrection. We would have had an improper flow of authority and he would have been fired and Bobby Kennedy would have stepped in. Well, in the economy of God, the very first thing you have to do is accept that His ways are higher than your ways and Lord, I will speak for you and not for myself. You see Jesus do this in the garden. Lord, is there any other way? You know, this doesn't look like a lot of fun. Is there any other way this could be done? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. That could be offensive to some people that I almost make light of. I'm not making light of the situation. I'm saying all human beings must come to that place. Lord, this Christianity thing looks hard. I don't know how I could survive in the business world without lying. I don't know how I could survive in the business world without sticking somebody when I get the chance. I mean, it's dog-eat-dog out there, Lord. Have you not looked around? Christianity starts with the acceptance of the axioms of the Bible as something higher than your own. You know, we, we expect this of our children all of the time. My son's playing with a shiny pocket knife. To him, it's, it's sparkly. It's wonderful. It's enthralling. He has no idea of the dangers it can cause to him. And I say, son, put it away. Does he want to put that away? Of course not. He wants to play with it. To him, it's something shiny, sparkling, enthralling. But he has to accept that my authority is higher than his and therefore my word is supersedes his opinions. And for him to be blessed, he has to go, I don't necessarily understand why, but if Daddy says put it away, I'm going to. Now, I use such a simple example because it's easy to see how a pocket knife would hurt a kid. But in your life, we don't understand. Lord, why would you cause me to do that? Why would you let this happen? I can't believe it. You have to start in Christianity by accepting that His ways are higher than your ways. That's the first step to being an ambassador. Most people have the hardest time with the judgment. We're fine as long as we're talking about grace. We're fine. Hey, greasy grace. <laughs> Sloppy agape. You know, all of these. There's a, a million of those. We're fine as long as we're talking about best-selling books that promise blessings to everybody. God wants you rich and God wants this and God wants everything except you to be holy. You know, and guys, I'm not standing before you here as an ambassador giving you my opinions. I'm not standing before you as an ambassador claiming to be a perfect representation. You all know me. I mean, you know me well. Some of you in here changed my diapers. Or maybe not, but were there and supervised it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not telling you I've got it all together. But I am telling you that I was commissioned with a message and I'm giving you that message this morning. This is how we approach people with the gospel. Not as one who's perfect. Not as one who's got it all together. But one who has come with a, with a message that is higher than your own. I'm just here to show you what Jesus did. I believed, so I spoke. That's, that's what the apostles said. Okay, so there is a judgment. And that judgment is what most men spend all of their time trying to avoid. You can do it in a variety of ways. False religions, uh, instead of being filled with the Spirit, being filled with spirits that come in a bottle. Instead of being drunk in the Holy Ghost, being high on something else. There are all kinds of ways trying to avoid the eternity that God placed in man's heart. 
the expectancy of a judgment. We all know it's there. It's why sometimes we can't sleep when we know we've done something wrong. You know there's a judgment there. Before I leave that subject, the church is unique. The church says, the Bible says about the church aside from mankind. The church is the place where judgment begins. In other words, you are receiving judgment now as the Holy Spirit begins to correct your behavior, as your life begins to change, so that when you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, you will have gotten it all in order. Can you imagine what it will be like if the righteous, the Bible says, are barely saved? Can you imagine what it will be like for people that have ignored that prodding all of their life? I know God is love. I know that He loved the world and that He desires all men to be saved. We're going to read some of that. But you cannot explain away the Scripture that says every man will stand before Him and give an account for things done in the body, good or bad. doesn't matter whether you like it or not. When the Bible describes the setting, by the way, it says the earth and the sky fled from His presence and He rolled them up like garments. Now, this was, those words were written by a Jewish man who was imprisoned on a Roman island of Paphmos, making idols for the Romans because he had been preaching the gospel. They punished him. They made him do ugly things. And when he was seeing this vision, he said it looked to him like the sky and the earth ran away from Jesus. I mean, get the picture of that in your mind. We're talking about an awesome setting. Not that the earth literally rolled up like a garment or the sky did. He was saying His glory, His brightness, the power of the setting was so awesome it looked like everything else ran in other directions. That's what it's going to be like the day that we stand before Jesus. Boy, I want to get it right. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. You know, that statement made made Paul go, whoa, look, on this judgment note, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, you know, To fear the Lord is not a bad thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't mean He's not loving. It doesn't mean that you don't love Him. It means that you respect Him. That's literally what it means. My page turned. I'm sorry. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Here's the the key point. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, therefore, are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Friends, what Paul is saying is the hope of the Gospel is that death will be swallowed up in life. The hope of the Gospel is that when we stand before Jesus to receive things done in the body, whether good or bad, we will be credited with good. The hope of the Gospel is that people were appointed as ambassadors, but for what purpose? This is the whole crux of the message. For reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Think of a nice way to say this. I have been uh, in arguments. That's an easy one. And you needed to reconcile with someone. To reconcile means that you take this point of view and you take that point of view and you cause them to mix and, until there's an agreement. You remember how I said the Gospel starts though? It starts with the acceptance of God's Word as being above yours. Another way we reconcile, everybody can relate to this one, you reconcile your checkbook. Or you should. Some of you don't. <laughs> you should reconcile your checkbook. What does it mean to reconcile your checkbook? You look at everything that's cleared your account. You look at all the debits and the credits and you come out with a balance. Well, when you do this in your life, when you have received the ministry of reconciliation, what happens is you begin to look at your debits and you decide, wow, I've sinned and the wages of sin are death. You look at your life and you realize, there's a day I'm going to stand before the King and so far, I don't really measure up. And you say, I need help with this, Lord. And He comes in and he who, this is what this verse meant. He who knew no sin, he who had no debts, was made to be your debt for you. In other words, he walks by and says, Tony, wow, this is not good, but I'm going to fix it for you. Brad, what you did can't be repaid, but I'm going to repay it for you. The ministry of reconciliation is for people who have decided, well, I need help. I am spiritually bankrupt and I need somebody to help me out of it. Now, as an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation, what you do then is, he said, as if God Himself were making this plea, as if you were making this plea on God's behalf, it's not that you run around and tell people you're going to hell. It's not that you run around and beat people down about the judgment. It's that you tell people there is the chance for you to be reconciled. Now, have you ever wondered why there's so much eating in the Bible? Every time you see Jesus, every time you see Him in the New Testament, you know, save just a few times, He's eating at somebody's house. You know? I heard somebody explain it this way. They said, you know, when I became a Christian, I gave up illicit sex. I gave up drugs. I gave up, and I listed all these things. I said, eating's all I got left. He <laughs> you know? thought that's why Christians were eating all the time. That's not it. In the Middle East, particularly in Israel, if Cassidy and I have a problem, if the P. Rose and the Stevens are feuding, I should have used Arkansas, huh, man? <laughs> all right, if the Stevens and the P. Rose are feuding, what you would do if you lived in the Middle East, is I would send an invitation. And I would say, Piros, come to my house and eat. If the Piros accepted, this was a sign that they were willing to be reconciled. We would sit down. They would bring dishes. I would kill animals. I would make the food. They would bring the dishes. I would supply the food. And there would be an exchange. They would leave their dishes with me and I would give them my food. Meals took hours. You know the French with their four-course, five-course meals? In the Middle East, you start eating at, at sunset and you would finish late in the 
evening, just push back from the table and go to sleep there. You spent the evening there. This, the reason Jesus is always eating with people in the Bible is because this was a form of reconciliation. It was a chance for you to exchange something that showed your love for one another, for you to be able to discuss openly, for you to be able to share with one another so that there could be a coming of terms. This is why the book of Revelation says of Jesus, uh, Behold, I stand outside the door and I knock. If any man will answer, then I will come in and eat with him and he will eat with me. He's saying that his cry to the world is be reconciled to me. So if we are ministers of reconciliation, our message is, friends, your account's overdrawn. That doesn't make you a bad person. It means you're just like me. Mine's overdrawn too. But there is somebody who will pay this debt. And all it requires is for you to hold His Word higher than your Word. For you to decide that His way is better than your way. And boy, doesn't this make perfect sense? How did man get into the trouble that he's in? How did we get into the position where death entered the world? You'll remember, everybody thinks that this is some uh, figurative language, that this is some allegory, some spiritual... It's not. When the Bible says that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that the woman and the man ate from it, it's teaching you that to show you the way that man got into trouble with deciding, God, I don't want you to tell me what's good and bad for me. I want to make those choices myself. And that that process caused death. So if you want to fix the problem, what you do is you return to the state before they ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. You say, Lord, I know that I'm supposed to have this decision-making ability of what is good and bad, but I'm going to yield it up to you. Show me by your Spirit what you want me to do. I will read your Word and show me what you want me to do in every situation. This goes way beyond the Ten Commandments that simply said, in these situations, do these things. Or the other 602 603 commands that went along with it. There's a total of 613, obviously. My math is struggling this morning. That said, in each of these situations do this. And we have gone all the way back to the point where we said, God, in every situation, I need you to show me what to do because I'm deficient. After all, the reason you and I are sitting here meeting is because I couldn't reconcile my checkbook and I need your help. If you're unwilling to do that, you can't be saved. But if you're willing to do that, then God will make everything abound to you in every way, everything that you need. Let's look at this ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 1, starting in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom... Of God, the world through its wisdom... I'm in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. That wind keeps changing my pages. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set His seal of ownership on us. And He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, what is anointed us? set His seal of ownership on us, and put His deposit in us mean. Under this idea that you were all appointed ambassadors with this ministry of reconciliation as Christians, you need to know that first of all, He appointed you. A difference between you and Adley Stevenson is that the president of God's economy has the utmost faith in you. You are a person of His choosing. Even the word church 
comes from the word ecclesia. It means the drafted ones, those that are called out. You were in the spiritual NFL draft and all of the coaches were vying for you. You were on the team that wanted you. If you're in Christ, you were wanted. You, in fact, you cannot be saved. You can't be called as a Christian. You can't become an ambassador except that the Spirit of God draw you. Boy, that ought to make you feel important. The very fact that you're in this room this morning is a sign that God is drawing you to Himself. That means He wants you. Your husband may not want you. Your father may not have wanted you. But God Himself wants you. He sees value in you. And that's really the important one. So, first off, as an ambassador, you are appointed by God. You are somebody of His choosing. And there's no Senate confirmation to go through. There is no other hierarchy that can veto your appointment. There is no church on earth that can write you in or out of His appointment. God Himself says, I want you. And you know what? His Word is higher than everyone else's. So despite what your brother on your right or your sister on your left thinks about you, God wants you. So first off, He says you're appointed. Second of all, He put His seal of ownership on you. God wanted there to be no doubt that when Mandy went out into the workplace, when she began interacting with other humans, that His seal... Now, Adley Stevenson bore a seal. When they give a State of the Union address, there's a seal in the background. When a presidential letter is issued, there is a seal on the, on, on the envelope. This seal was to show from whose government you have gone forth. Well, God appointed you and He put a seal on you. Do you know what your seal is supposed to be? The fruit that the Spirit in you causes people to see. You know, that seal is the presence of the Spirit in your life. That seal is the outward representation of what God is doing in you inwardly. Boy, how I wish it was just a stamp on the forehead. Then you could look and go, wow, he's a Christian. She's not. He is. She's not. And you would know who your brothers and sisters were. But isn't that exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Every tree is known by its fruit. No good tree bears bad fruit. No bad tree bears good fruit. Thus, by your fruit, they will recognize you. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you want to know if somebody's in Christ, look for the seal. Now, I'm not telling you that if you see somebody do something wrong, that they're not in Christ. No, all ambassadors are flawed. But you should see some semblance of a seal somewhere in their life. Some outward show that they do love Jesus. That ought to be visible. If it's not, you need to re-examine your life. You need to look at your life and go, wow, am I really, am I really in Christ? Because the seal's supposed to be there. Now, Friends, I'm not telling you this to beat yourselves up. There are a lot of times I think, my God, I wear the seal, but they also see this other stuff. You know, and I could cry over it. I do. Part of the message of the ambassador is I'm not perfect. He is. I'm bringing you his perfect message, not mine. That's how you reconcile the fact that not everything in your life displays that seal perfectly. You are in Christ because you recognize that your death outweighed your ability to pay and you're counting on Him to make up the difference. Does that make sense? That's what grace is. You know, in Bible school, they teach you grace is defined as unmerited favor. And I still scratch my head and say, what does that mean? Grace is God gives you slack. God gives you what you can't get. God says, you know what? That seal doesn't shine perfectly, but I see His heart. 
I see that every inclination of his heart is to get it right, so I will make up what he lacks. That's what grace is. And the Bible doesn't say he gave you grace. The Bible doesn't say he sold you grace. He dripped some grace on you. It says he lavished grace on you. In other words, he's poured it on your head all the way down to your feet. He will make up for whatever you can't do if you're just inclined towards him. That's what the Bible's about. Okay, so first, He's appointed you. Secondly, He's put a seal of ownership on you. The third thing was, He put His Spirit in you as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, when you're standing making the address before people, when you're out there and you're saying, hey, I'm called as an ambassador, inwardly you have His Spirit proving to you that what you're saying is right proving to you that you've tasted of the power of the age to come and He will redeem your body. Because ultimately, you're being reconciled so that you can be delivered from death. His Spirit in you proves that He has the power to deliver you from death. That's why we went through the first part of 2 Corinthians 5. So every ambassador is both enabled, protected, and guaranteed. In 2 Corinthians 3, flip over a couple pages... One of the real problems with an ambassador, remember with Adley, they said, you know, I don't know if Adley can get it done. Maybe we ought to send Bobby Kennedy instead. You know, let's choose the most skilled person. Let's choose the one we think would do the best job. But do you remember an ambassador is somebody that God Himself appointed? You know, if if we have an electrical problem, wouldn't it be most logical to choose Matt, the electrician? But the problem is God may have appointed Brad, who has no electrical understanding. God appoints even in spite of you being competent because it does not rest on you. Look what 2 Corinthians 3 says. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Uh, I don't expect you from that one sentence to know what the letter and the Spirit means, but I, I will tell you. But before we get there, you need to understand this. As we become these ambassadors, as we begin to make the appeal to the world, God will reconcile you as you consider the message of reconciliation on the other side, the first thing that happens is you feel beat to your knees. I'm not confident to do this. I mean, after all, who can represent God? I mean, they're going to look at me. Isn't this what Moses said when he was sent back to Egypt? Lord, I don't speak. Send somebody else. You know, I'm just a shepherd. God doesn't choose us based on our confidence. He makes you confident. This is so... You know what? If Bobby Kennedy had been sent to the U.N., everybody would have said, well, we knew Bobby could get it done. The reason it's such an impressive thing is because they had doubts about whether Adley could do it. The thing about God that is so awesome is the, the story of the underdog. He takes those people, you, me, who the world thinks could never amount to anything, and He does something spectacular with you. He takes the ordinary and does extraordinary things. And He made you confident. So next time you're thinking about all of your flaws, all of your faults, all that you do wrong, you need to remember, I've accepted that this Word is higher than my own Word and it says 
I am competent. You may not have been loved, but God appointed you. You may not feel competent, but God says you are competent. You know, one of the things parents do to their children that is horrible, and you hear it all the time, I fight not to do it to my kids. Because you're a parent and you know more than the child does, it's easy for you to always step in and say, no, let me do that. Here, you're doing that wrong. Don't do it that way. And you can give a child the feeling that they are incompetent to do anything. And you see this expressed in their adult life when they're insecure and unsure about everything that they do. And if you look back far enough, some influence in their life was always saying, no, you're doing it wrong. Let me do it. God's just the opposite. He says, hey, I'm going to throw you in way over your head, but I'm telling you, you are competent. And He does that. And you know what? You come out of it. You knock down Goliath when everybody said you couldn't. And you come out of it going, my God, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And this God that we serve, He builds you rather than tears you. The world works to tear you down and tell you you aren't any good. But God works in you to show you you can do anything. You are my man. Do you know what literally the translation of ambassador is? One who stands in my stead. Think about that. If you're an ambassador of Christ, you are standing there for Jesus. And He appointed you to do it. He picked you out. He said, Brad, I want you to go talk to Eric for me. Boy, that's awesome. It would be an honor if the governor of this state said, Cassidy, I want you to go speak for me at this gala. It would be an honor if the President of the United States said, I want you to give this address for me. And the God of the universe has appointed you. Oh, we ought to have no problems with self-esteem. Our problems all derive from not esteeming the Word higher than our own opinion. See, we know this is true, but then we begin to think about all of our faults, all the problems that we have, all of those things, and before long, what we think begins to outweigh what God thinks. This is why the Bible is likened unto a wash basin, that you would go in and renew yourself. Because when you look at yourself in your own eyes, you see dirty, you see problems. But when you wash with this Word, you begin to see yourself like God sees you. The whole sacrificial system in the Bible was set up to show this. You would have an animal killed. Its blood would be thrown in your face, showing you're dirty. That's the accepting accountability part. Then you would go over to a wash basin that had a polished mirror in the bottom. That was symbolic of the Word. And you would look into it and you see that you were dirty, but you would take the Word and it would cleanse you and you would see something that was clean by God's choosing. God can make you clean. He knows that you're not. He knows that your account's over. Have you ever been... Don't raise your hands. Have you ever been in a situation where you were married and then right after you got married, you go, they didn't tell me they had all this debt. I worked with a guy who married this woman because she thought he had money. Then, immediately afterwards, she found out that all that money she thought he had was a relative that had the same name. And boy, disappointed. Boy, disappointed. And there were problems there immediately. We are not dealing with a situation where God did not know what He was getting. He chose you because He knew the situation you were in. And He's looking for something from you. Sincere devotion. All the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, if He knew what kind of woman she was, He would not spend any time with her. And Jesus said, hey, He who sins much, loves much. He chose you because you needed Him so badly. 
Not because you didn't need Him. You know, the problem with most people is they think they have no need of a doctor. They look at themselves and they've convinced themselves that everything's okay because they drive the right car, they work at the right job, and they have the right friends. And they all stand around and tell stories about how great they are until they believe it. The Bible starts with you accepting accountability. Then you move on to the idea that God has appointed you. He's put His seal of ownership on you. And He's given you a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. And then He made you competent. It's important that we always remember. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3, says this. It's important that you remember this. As ambassadors of Christ, you have been given this comfort. You've been given this knowledge that Jesus loves you. You've been given this knowledge that He's reconciled you. You've been given this spirit of comfort for a reason. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Why were you comforted? Why has God given you this message? Why did God reconcile your debts? So that you then could go with that same comfort and say, hey, brother, sister, you're not without help. You're not without a means out of the horrible hole you have dug for yourself. God helped me and He'll help you. That's, that's why you've received it. This keeps you from being all high and mighty and lifted up as, look how great I am. I have it all together. I'm God's man of power for the hour. That's not why you received it. And every time people get confused and get into that realm, they get knocked off their high horse. Not because God's mad at them, because God loves them. And they need to be knocked down so that they can be the servant God called them to be. You can name a hundred people like that. They make fun of them on TV every night. God doesn't. He cares about them. That's why He knocked them down. We love a God who... We serve a God who loves us enough to discipline us. The Bible says if you weren't disciplined by God, you would be bastard children. The Bible says that. Yeah, it does. Read it. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. You wouldn't believe what the Bible says. Actually, you will. you just got to read it. You were comforted so that you could comfort others. By the way, that same Scripture, verse 5 says, uh, For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. We would tend to turn that around. We would tend to say, Oh, well, Jesus comforted us so we can comfort other people. And occasionally, just as Jesus suffered, you'll suffer. Notice the order He put it in. He said, Guys, it's painfully evident. All you guys in the Corinthian church, all the suffering that Christ endured, you're also enduring. But all the comfort Christ had, you also have. Suffering was right a part of of the church. I'm not telling you about Christianity and this message of being an ambassador as one that is a bed of roses. It is hard. There are times where you will cry. You will be so upset that you want to do what you want to do. But you can't. You gave up that right. I remember my son opened a Christmas present when he was three. Very first Christmas that he was old enough to do this kind of stuff. And I said, did you open that? No. I said, well, paper's laid out everywhere. You're standing there. Did you open it? No. It's the first time he ever lied that I knew of. I finally said, you know, son, I need to know. Did you open that? Judah stood there and cried. And he said, it's hard, Dad. It is hard to tell the truth. 
that was an example of him knowing what was right, but it can be incredibly hard to do. The Spirit will help us in our weakness. The Holy Ghost will bring to your remembrance the words of Jesus. He will empower you with what to do. Even my three-year-old son eventually chose what was right because at three he had a love for Jesus. Does he get it right every time? No, not any more than his old man does. I sure don't. But the power is there for us to get it right. But it can be awful hard sometimes. We don't throw stones at each other when we see that somebody didn't get it right, but you also don't make an excuse for it. Don't you change the grace of our God into a license for immorality as some have done. The book of Jude says, Men without the Spirit, the same men who divide you, have changed the grace of God into a license for sin. This is the churches that stand up and say, God is love, He's love, and it doesn't matter what you do or how you act. And if you just walk this aisle, you're good to go. Or, how about the dark ages? You pay $7.50, you can rape, you can pillage, you can burn, you can do whatever you want, and it's all good. That is a license for immorality and affront to God. 2 Corinthians 2, and we're, we're going to close here soon, teaches this principle. We're in the holiday season, and when you walk into department stores, you hear songs, they're singing about Jesus. In fact, usually ungodly people who sing well are singing about Jesus. But hey, it's about Jesus. You know, they asked Paul one time, he was in prison, he said, you know, they're, they're out there preaching for self-gain. He says, whether they're preaching for self-gain or for Christ, Christ is being preached. You know, found a positive way of looking at it. You know, I'm not upset at all to hear somebody who was doing heroin singing about Jesus. I'm just happy the words about Jesus are going out there. <laughs> you know, I heard the testimony of a famous rock singer in the 70s who ended all of her concerts with Amazing Grace. And all the church was upset about that. You know, How can this woman sing about masturbation and all of these horrible things that she sings about and then sing about Amazing Grace? She later became a Christian. And she said... The reason she ended every concert with Amazing Grace, it was the only moment in her life when she felt close to God and she was hanging on to it. It was the only moment. that she, The rest she did for money. She did for fame. She did for glory. But that was the only moment in her life where she felt close to God and so she did it whenever she could. Yo, we need to not be so self-righteous sometimes. 2 Corinthians 2 and the department stores and the uh, uh, atmosphere. Something that you, uh, so I associate with Christmas is the smell. You know, you walk into uh, Thanksgiving. You walk into homes and you smell the stuffing and the turkey and all of those things. You walk into department stores this time of year and they've all got their fragrances out and everything to allure you, to attract you. Well, as an ambassador, you are an aroma sent from God. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Guys, when we walk through a room, people are supposed to, wow, there's a Christian in here. I'm not talking about literally, literally smell you, but it's supposed to be a good feeling, as if something pleasant just entered the room. They say uh, that there was an evangelist named uh, Charles Finney. They say he could pass through a town on a train and the guy was so in love with Jesus that in the town people would begin to get saved. That the move of God around his life was so powerful that he could be sitting on the same train without speaking and people would come up and say, when I'm around you, I feel convicted of sin in my life. He didn't speak. 
that He was the fragrance of God to them. Now, this same Scripture goes on to say, to some, this fragrance is the stench of death, and to others, it's the very fragrance of life. There will always be people that will look at you and find fault. There will always be people that say, oh, He just thinks He's better than me, even though that's the furthest thing from your mind. There will always be people that find a way to be offended with you, just like they would be with some spouse. But to those that are being saved, those that God is drawing, you're the very fragrance of life. And so you don't do this arrogantly. You don't do this with animosity. But you do in your heart go, wow, He hates me and I haven't done anything. He's not being saved. doesn't mean He won't ever be saved. It means this is not the season God's drawing Him. Let's move on to somebody that is pleasant. (laughs) And you don't get offended with this. Have you ever noticed somebody likes one kind of perfume and not another? It's marketed to thousands. And evidently there are people out there that buy it, but you don't like it. There are times in your life where some people will find you the fragrance of life and others not. You know, there are all kinds of tools to get something to grow. Sometimes you have to plow up the dirt and tear at it. Other times you have to plant seeds deep. Other times you have to water. Sometimes you have to prune. All of those things. Different fragrances in your life. If you're an ambassador, you or somebody that is the aroma of God. We're nearing an end here, so I want to get to a couple other things. Another passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of Moses covering his face. When he met with God, he was radiant because he had met with God. His face was glowing, but the people's hearts were not right. And so he covered his face with a veil so that the people wouldn't see and be weirded out by it or convicted by it or jealous of it or whatever the reaction might be. And Paul goes on to liken certain people as having the gospel veiled to them. But when he speaks of us, he says, you, you are free. You're free and you walk around with unveiled faces. Like this aroma, your faces, your very actions are supposed to freely reflect the glory of God everywhere that you go. We are not to hide it. We're not to veil it. We're not to be concerned with the reaction of others. We are ambassadors. Everywhere we go, we're supposed to reflect it. And we know up front, some will like it and some won't, and that's okay. As we go on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, he says, you have been given this all-surpassing power in jars of clay. In fact, let me read some of this. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Don't be surprised that you being an ambassador the things that will be remembered, the things that the world takes note of. Think of Adley Stevens, the only thing you remember in his whole life, although the man had a distinguished career, was the time he stood in crisis. Christians are the same way. It's only when you are pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned. It's only when you are pressed on every side that what is in you is revealed as treasure. The rest of the time people just see a jar of clay. So we can rejoice in the times that we're pressed. We can rejoice in the times that we're being persecuted. You can rejoice when you have no means of provision that are visible. 
Because you know, number one, God is going to provide. And secondly, all of a sudden, people will begin to see God move in your life. Ambassadors don't stand out at all unless there's a crisis. Then they become vitally important. People will stop you on the street and say, I see that you represent so-and-so. Tell me, what does the United States say? Tell me, what does the kingdom of God have for me? These words, and then we'll, we'll close in the next five or six minutes. <laughs> Second Corinthians 4, verse 13. This is the attitude that you need to have as Christians. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the One who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in His presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, what you believe, because you believe, He says, therefore you speak. And you look at everything else in your life and you weigh it as temporary. And what you are striving after is eternal. Some of you have heard me say this before, but Winston Churchill almost single-handedly won World War II. You know, I mean, without him, we would all probably be speaking German. He was not a particularly godly man. In fact, most people record him as somewhat of a drunkard. And a funny thing that he did was he was at a party and a woman was very offended that he was drunk. She said, Sir, I perceive that you are drunk. He says, yes, madam, your perception is true. And I perceive that you are ugly. The difference between you and I is in the morning I shall be sober while you shall still be ugly. <laughs> Winston had the ability to look at a temporary situation and see there was a fix for it and weigh that against a permanent situation. Sometimes with that same lighthearted attitude, we need to look at our troubles and go, you know what? This is temporary. I'm working for something that's eternal here. This is light. And think about the guy who wrote this. We're talking about he'd been caned. You know, he'd been beaten with a cat of nine tails. He'd been shipwrecked, snake bit, everything you can think of. And he said, it's light and momentary when compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. One more thing, then we'll close. Second Corinthians, or Second Timothy 2.5 speaks of uh, God appointing a mediator. There being one mediator between man and God, and that man being Jesus. And the idea is expressed in Job 9. It says that Jesus basically, I mean, Job's crying out. It's the oldest book in the Bible. It's uh, 1,600 years after Adam, 2,400 years before Jesus is somewhere in that time period, somewhere right around the great flood. And it says, Lord, no matter what I do, I'm guilty. He came to that conclusion. I could be shiny white, but somehow or another I'd get slime on me. That's basically what he said. And so I can't talk to you. I mean, what kind of man can talk to God? All of us feel that way, especially prior to coming into Christ. He said, what I need, Lord, 
is I need somebody to lay his hand upon my shoulder and upon your shoulder. Then your rod of affliction, it would be removed from me and I could speak up freely. That's what Job 9 says. 2 Timothy 5 says that Jesus has been appointed as that mediator. He's put His hand upon the shoulder of man and upon the shoulder of God and He's made peace. There's a confusing Scripture, or at least some people think it's confusing. It says, you know, a mediator doesn't represent just one party, but God is one. You say, what on earth does that mean? Jesus perfectly understood both parties, but He didn't represent just just one party. He represented both. He was a man that stood in the presence of God so he could reconcile the two. Now that same Jesus has appointed you, this mediator that has removed all of your problems in your life has commissioned you to go out and tell people about it. Now, I'm telling you that for evangelism, but I'm also telling you that so that you will be evangelized. Whatever your problems are, whatever they are, there's a solution and it's found in Jesus. You just got to give him a chance. We're going to close with these words. Starting in Second uh, Corinthians 5. Verse 17. This is on page 1285 in the Thompson chain. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, In the time of My favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I help you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. The Bible speaks of salvation being a singular day. We've grown up in an environment where we've heard you can be saved so much that we take it for granted as if there will always be tomorrow. There will always be another chance. The Bible says today, in your hearing, as you hear this, today is the day of salvation. Today is the time of the Lord's favor. You are not promised tomorrow. There are a hundred parables in the Bible that teach this. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to tell you how important it is that you think deeply about these things, that you act on them while the Lord is moving on you. You've heard all your life that the Lord wants all men to be saved, but don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. You cannot cuss God your entire life and then expect Him to draw you in your final hours. You know, do people get saved right at the end of their lives? Absolutely they do but you are not guaranteed that that will happen. Today is called the day of salvation. Today. Today is the time of the Lord's favor. I want you to think about that today. As ambassadors of Christ, I want you to think about when you're walking around, today might be somebody else's day. Don't you be a disobedient servant and cause them to miss out on the time of the Lord's favor. If you believe, Paul says, therefore, you speak.
Y'all stand up. Let's pray.